Did you know that the word huh is the most common word in the most amount of languages? Welcome to Ask Huh, a personal growth podcast about people who questioned, got curious, and made changes, big and small, in their lives. I'm Chrissy McMenamin, a lifelong student of emotional intelligence, and my hope is these conversations inspire you to look inside at yourself, your emotions, and your choices, so you can be more authentically you in this world that so desperately needs you to be. Are you ready to ask, huh? Natalie Nixon is a woman with a loopy past. Those are her words, not mine. In this episode, she talks about the moment her parents gave her permission to follow what sparked her curiosity and how she's done that ever since. This winding road has led Natalie to consult with huge corporations on creativity and innovation, and she has even written a book about the topic in a field often dominated by a whole lot of people who do not look like her. In this episode, we talk about why we lose creativity as we enter adulthood, how to reclaim it as adults, and why it's the starting point of innovation, the thing every company, and I think person too, wants and thinks they can snap their fingers to get. Natalie also talks about why pausing to daydream is so necessary and the things she's getting audacious about. As you're listening, a few things to think about. You, as a child, how were you creative? What did you experiment with? And how have you taken that into adulthood or not? What do you want to get back to? When's the last time you paused and got curious about your life, how you spend time, and what's important to you? Do you daydream? If not, why not? And do you want to start? Let's tag it away. Hi, Natalie. <laughs> hey, Christy. It's so good to see you. Good to see you too. Before we like launch into this idea of asking, huh, and curiosity, which is a lot of, I think, what you do as well, I just wanted to share how we met because I think it's such a fun story. Um, so, we met at an electronics mall <laughs> in Shenzhen, China. We weren't there by happenstance, though. We were there as marketing mentors um, as part of the Asia Pacific Innovation Academy, which is this very cool program um, that supports high school, college, or I guess more college students in launching startups in a very short time period. And so we met in this electronics mall, and I just remember walking around these multiple, multiple layers of every gadget and electronic and light show and flying airplane and God <laughs> knows what. And drum machines. I played a lot of cool drum machines. And drum machines and just like meandering and talking about actually curiosity and creativity and all of these really cool things. And that's how we kind of hit it off. But I'm so happy that we've kind of stayed connected over the last few years because that was back in 2018. Um, and we've done a few of these other 
European Innovation Academy programs together. Um, but you're okay. I, I'm going to take like a second to just be like, okay, you're a you've been a professor, you have a PhD, you um, have your own business, you have written a book, you're an author now of The Creativity Leap, which I am so excited about. And you've been really putting yourself out there and speaking all over the world and doing all of this amazing stuff. But it all kind of started in some ways with this concept of creativity. It probably even started before I put it together and, and the way I frame creativity, it started with my interest in improvisation and using improv jazz improvisation as a way to understand the ways that we might be better prepared for the future of work. Because when I was a professor and I was a professor for 16 years, I I uh, naively completed a PhD while working full-time in four years. Oh I, I did it um, the University of Westminster in London. So the Brits, the way their doctoral system is set up is much more like independent study. So um, I would go back and forth to London over, over that period of time, but it was, it was much more like kind of independent study, the way it was structured. But I ended up working with the Ritz Carlton, trying to understand the ways that the ways they design experiences for guests and was at a real standstill and stagnation point in my research process because I had to figure out what my theoretical construct was. And I had no idea what that was. I was, I was very getting, feeling very burned out and very confused and, and way in above my head. And I remember saying to my uh, lead advisor, my, my professor, Dr. Allison Ripple, I, I was actually having kind of a big freak out with her over Skype and a meltdown and was just about to get off the, the phone, the call with her when I said, well, it probably doesn't mean anything, but you know, there is this interesting thing in my data where people reference jazz a lot. They'll say things like, well, when things are working really smoothly, it's like jazz or it just flows. And I said, that's probably nothing, but I don't know. I, I, I just want, I just meant to mention it to you before we hang up today. And she was like, right you're talking about improvisational organizations, go to it. So I had to go look up <laughs> all this research about, and there's a ton of research on understanding org design from the perspective of improv. And some, some scholars look at it from the perspective of theatrical improv and others from jazz. And for a number of reasons, jazz made a lot of more sense to me. So my first entry point into it was, was really from my practice as a scholar to really understand org design and jazz improv was the way I made my way into it. I ended up giving a TEDx Philadelphia talk in 2014, proclaiming that the future of work is jazz. Here's why, here's how. And that led to a lot of invitations to go into companies to help them figure out why and how in their own context. And that kind of then set me up to uh, launch a strategic design MBA program at the university where my professional network started to expand to a lot more startup leaders. And it was in the process of befriending them and working with them and having them uh, interact and do projects with our grad students. I would just notice this pattern in their origin stories where they would say things like, something told me not to do the deal. Or something told me to work with her, not him. 
And I thought, what is that something? I think it's, I think it's intuition. Um, we never talk about intuition in business school, law school, no. medical school. No. I think there's something there. Not at all, right? Uh, no. And yeah. So I so so it was first it was improv, then it was intuition. My point in telling you all this is that it was a very loopy process in my way into it, which is very um, typical of me. I have a really loopy background, but it was also in the process of doing more consulting where I was being asked to help clients build cultures of innovation. But I just had this creeping sensation that we were starting at the wrong place. People were just throwing around the I word constantly. And I thought, gosh, I, we're, we're, we're talking over and around each other. I don't think we actually know what innovation is. But I also realized I need to come up with an alternative. And so that's when I started to piece together the work around improv, intuition, and then finally curiosity. And then that became this mashup of, of an ecosystem um, that helped to inform the way I think about creativity. Oh, my gosh. That's so cool. <laughs> Well, and I also, I would actually love to take a few steps back because innovation, creativity, all of those things, I feel like as children, it's some of those things are so innate to us. And I know from my own experience, it's like, I was this like child who looked at the world and smelled all the flowers and was like innately doing things with like garbage that I would pull in and make something creative out of it and paint and whatever. And then over the course of 10, 15 years, I lost it and I'm kind of regaining it now. I'm curious to know uh, a little bit about Natalie as a little girl and (laughs) how some of that, like, are you regaining some of that the same way? Was there some of that in your childhood as you look back? Oh, absolutely. I think you're right, Christy, that all of us innately have the elements of deep curiosity. Curiosity is a way into exploration and discovery. And it's the way we make sense of the world from younger than toddler age on, on, on beyond until we begin to get socialized in an educational system. And then we intuit quite naturally. And I, I think of intuition as pattern recognition. Sometimes I call them I call intuition brain feelings. Um, a lot mm. of people refer to intuition as knowing without knowing. Um, but it's something that we all are just aligned with as, as younger people. But then as again, as we get educated and we're taught to err more on the side of what's rational, that kind of goes to the wayside. Um, and then improvisation is exactly what you were, you know, describing in terms of play. And I, as, as a kid, was incredibly goofy. I was a real tomboy. I um, was a mighty daydreamer. I loved to read. I was a big library kid. I grew up in Philly. I grew up in the city of Philadelphia. My mom was a devotee of exposing us to all sorts of cool citywide programs. And I remember at age four, you know, we had a big library tote bag and, you know, we would, she would have a cap on how many books we were allowed to pile in to the book. And this is before I can read, but just, just being loving to go to story time, loving to cuddle up to 
uh, my parents, when they would be reading to us. And then finally, when I was able to read, my favorite books were like Encyclopedia Brown and all the Nancy Drew series. Um, And I was a subscriber to Highlights Magazine and annoyed my my family to no end with um, riddles from the back of the Highlights Magazine. So that was the kind of kid I was. I was also an emergent dancer. So my mom put um, both me and my sister into dance class at eight. At, I started age four, uh, a very funky, hippie, modern uh, dance school. Um, and I studied Horton techniques and set from, from a very young age. And my mother was an artist. She was a fiber artist, a weaver. Years later, my mother learned to play the cello when she turned 50 and she's now 81 and she still plays. My father um, was a pharmaceutical sales rep, but in our home, he really exposed us to jazz music. He, he was a big jazz head. He played, he learned to play the, the upright acoustic bass in the service. And so my, my home artistically was incredibly rich. And my, my mother was a big proponent of us really trying to explore things things to figure things out. She was never going to just tell us the answer. Even the way she uh, encouraged us to cook, it wasn't about following a recipe. It was like, well, watch me, observe what I'm doing, help me out. When you try it, well, you try it your way. What do you think? You know, it was, it was, it was that, that sort of guidance and and facilitation. So that, that was my home environment. Um, I grew up in a, at a time when literally my mom could tell us during the summertime, you got to be home by the time the street lights come on and outside we play hopscotch and double dutch and tag. And, um, you know, it, that, that's, that's, so that, that was, that was my childhood. Yeah. And do you feel like you lost some of that as you got older? Oh, yeah. Oh, I, I definitely, I, I definitely felt the pressures. So I, I went to three very different types of schools probably really four different types of schools by the time I graduated from high school. And the last school I went to was a very outstanding, excellent, elitist, crunchy granola, Quaker prep school. Very great. An excellent school in Philadelphia, uh, Germantown Friends School, great top-notch education. Also, you know, academics were, were super strong and, and, and a bit pressure cooker. Mm. Um, college was relatively easy for me because I truly went to a, a prep school. So by the time I got to college, I remember feeling the pressure of like, I've got to pick the major that mm. will be impressive sounding, that will ensure that I get a really good J-O-B at the end of a very wonderful and very expensive education. My parents sacrificed incredibly much for our education. I didn't want to disappoint them. And I actually share a story in the Creativity Leap where I I talk about calling home, crying with my first world problem of not knowing what to declare for a major. And I'm going on and on about what I hate or what I'm almost failing. And my parents kept saying, what do you like? What do you enjoy? And finally, I almost in a confession type of way shared that I really love these Africana studies courses. And oh my gosh, I just started taking this anthropology class. It's amazing. And almost at the same time, they said, that's what you should study. And I was like, wait, what? So, so you mean you'll be okay if I study Africana studies? They were like, yeah. I said, 
hmm, and maybe I would do a, a double a double major and throw in African studies. <laughs> like if that's what you like. And my father said, if you study what you love, you will have to turn away opportunities. And it was this load that that lifted off my shoulders because they were giving me permission to follow my heart. They were giving me permission to do me. And um, it was it has been to this day one of the, one of the most incredible gifts that they gave me. And I, I always emphasize to people just to put this in context. This was the 80s. This was 1988, 89. I'm African-American. I do not come from financial wealth. I don't, my parents aren't wealthy. I don't, I don't have a trust fund waiting for me. Um, so for, for these two people who, who had sacrificed so hard at a time, like when I would come home for family dinners over breaks, it's like the, the thing to study was like computers, <laughs> it was like <laughs> right? Yeah. And so for me to have to like, explain I'm studying anthropology, but not the kind you see in National Geographic. It's this whole other story. I mean, it was this whole thing for them to say, no, you study what you love, opportunities are going to come to you was radical. It was, it was incredible that they they gave me that that gift. So I really have been practicing the habit of following my heart for a long time. It's been decades now. And, and I credit my parents for that. It's, it's almost like they first set me up. My father always explained to us the reason why they were sacrificing to send us to such an incredible high school. I went there from seventh through twelfth grade, this prep school. And and now I'm I'm saying my words, not his. It was about access because when I was in public school, you know, I got really good at filling out the worksheet. I got really good at giving the teacher what he or she wanted and getting the gold star stickers. And all of a sudden in prep school environments, I was in a, a very different culture of learning where it was, at, it was all about ask a better friggin' question. Mm. It was about challenging the teacher. And I wasn't good at that right away because I had been conditioned to learn and to think differently. It's all conditioning. Yeah. And so um, for my parents, it was about access to a very different environment and to a group of people who are really being channeled to um, blow up the system, think of new questions versus where I started was I was being conditioned to stay in my lane. I was being conditioned to um, fill in the dots. I do not go outside of the line. So, um, which is interesting when, I, when you think about the way I'm thinking about creativity as toggling between wonder and rigor to solve problems, I definitely got both. The challenge is that most of us do not, either we don't get exposure to both or we don't get equipped with the ways to toggle between both of those competencies. Mm, yeah, say more about that. Well, I do think creativity is a competency. I don't think creativity is something that only um, the cool kids can do or artists can do. Mm. Art, artists yeah. are, are exceptional at manifesting the ambiguity of process. Artists wrestle with the ambiguity of process. They are process oriented and not solutions oriented. So when I was a professor, I taught business students, engineering students, design students, 
business students, unfortunately, were always the worst at receiving feedback because business school students are conditioned to um, give me the answer yesterday. I mean, they're given these ridiculous case studies. You are uh, the vice president of a multinational division <laughs> of a global. I mean, no, you're not. You're like 23 years old. You don't know, Jack. That's not what you're going to do when you first get out of business school anyway. It's, it's more about the orientation should be about problem framing and problem solving. And so the ability to wrestle with ambiguity is not something that we um, are equipping people with enough in learning environments. And the studio model of learning, which you find in, in arts education, which you find in design education, values process, values, truly values embracing mistakes, the crit, the critique, the recital, the work in process, oxygenating the idea, getting feedback. It's all about the build. It's all about being able to stand behind your stand be, beside your work, objectively be able to look at it, receive feedback, incorporate the feedback into in order to make it better. When I would teach business school students, engineering students were a little better, but business school students, um, if you would start to give them feedback, they'd say, well, yeah, we're, we were going to do that. No, you aren't because it's not in the work yet. And that's okay. <laughs> that, you know, so, so I, I think that um, it's, it's all about learning behavior. Mm. Well, so tell me a little bit about how this moment of like, huh, in your research sort of got you to this point and now you're kind of teaching people a different learned behavior or almost teaching them to unlearn things yes. that maybe they have learned over years, decades, whatever it may be, and teaching a new way of innovating, being creative, because again, it's a learned thing. It's a practice like so yeah. many things. Well, I love the title of your podcast because that, huh, came to me in so many touch points along the way. So one was one I just shared when my parents were like, you could study what you love yeah. and you could trust the process. And, you know, but the thing about it, when you do what you love, no one has to tell you to stay up later, get up earlier, work longer, work harder. You do it. And the whatever tedium is involved, you just totally embrace it and work through it. The other huh was, that moment when that nudge, that intuitive nudge told me to just share before I get off the Skype call with Allison, the, the, what the data was telling me, what my interviews were telling me about um, these, these consistent comments about it feels like jazz when it works, when we, when mm. we deliver the services well. Um, and that, so, so the thing about following your intuition, um, pausing to ask, huh? And to ask the question is that these are habits that we get better at and stronger at paying attention to the more we do it. So, for example, um, my my 20-year-old stepdaughter, Sydney, when she graduated from high school, she's a sophomore now in college. Um, one of my gifts to her was a letter. And in my letter to her, I, I encouraged her to follow her heart, to study something that she loved. because she was embarking on the first opportunity, the first chapter of her life where she had the opportunity to start cultivating habits. And she could either start cultivating a habit where she follows the herd or she could start to cultivate a habit where she really pays attention to what is it 
that I enjoy. That's really like, doesn't even feel like work to me. And I have to say her first year, she was start. she was going this direction of, you know, what seemed impressive and practical, blah, blah, blah. And then she did a total pivot and she now is studying something that she absolutely adores and loves. She has not been at a loss for earning fellowships, internships. Um, it's not work to her. We, we learn a ton from her because she's so enthused about it. Um, but the, the op, what's, what's cool about the stage in place in my work right now, I'm at this wonderful convergence of all the loopy things that I did in my career, which didn't always make sense to people externally from around mm -hmm. me, um, that all of a sudden my background working in fashion and living abroad in Israel and Sri Lanka and Portugal, making bras and panties for the Victoria's Secret brand and being a middle school English teacher and having my own hat design business in my early 20s living in New York. And then being a professor for 16 years and, and challenging myself to, to get a PhD, which by the way, I think has less to do how smart we are and everything to do with our ability to take feedback, to be humble uh, and, and to, um, if you have a PhD, you're probably a really good researcher, writer and project manager. I think that's, for me, that's a lot of, of, what, it, of what it says. So I'm at this stage now where all of those loopy threads have converged into a way where, yeah, I think in my, to, in my heart, I am still a teacher. I've left the business of higher ed. ed. I'm no longer an academic, but I, I believe I will always be a teacher at heart. And it just show it gets to show up differently mm -hmm. in, in my advisory work, when I give keynotes, when I'm writing. Um, so I still get to try to change lives with ideas. I mean, that's, that's my jam. That's, that's what got me out of bed in the morning when I taught it was to change lives with ideas. And that's what gets me out of the bed every day now is through these ways of thinking differently about the way we work, why we work, how we work, how we can infuse creativity into this is, is what sparks me. Mm. I love that. And I love that you describe your career path as loopy because <laughs> it just makes me laugh one, but two, I think that everybody talks about millennials, which I'm at the sort of front end of the, the millennial generation is like, oh, they're the ones who are kind of going after what they want and blah, blah, blah. And like, they're doing it differently, but I'm not actually seeing that as much as people talk about it. I'm seeing a lot of people who are on a path or in one of my other podcast episodes, my friend Drew said he was on a freight train, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, steaming ahead in this one direction that we sort of think we have to be on. And I know that was me. Um, I don't think my parents ever said, don't study what you, what you love, but I didn't, I kind of kept doing the things that I was good at. I was studying like French literature and Spanish literature and English because that's the stuff I had been good at. And then I remember taking a course in sociology at the very end of college and being like, wait, what? This is amazing, <laughs> right? But I feel like there's such value in the looping. Yes. 
Um, and you're, you sort of started to maybe extract that value in big, big, big ways. I mean, it sounds like now, but you've extracted value the whole time, but like, what advice would you give to these people who are still on the freight train, by the way, they're like, still, they're going. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a matter of take your medicine now or take it later because mm-hmm. I am a solidly middle-aged woman. I'm 51 years old. So I have such clarity on all the ways that midlife crises are showing up among my friends and it's, you know, it's the moments of the acknowledgement of the golden handcuffs of pe- those people who've been on, on, the, on the corporate freight train or um, the sometimes it's a different narrative. It's, it's like, oh, money doesn't matter. I'm only going to do good at the exclusion of, of doing well financially and wealth building. And the two are not mutually exclusive and and to be able to understand the intersection between those is, is another wake up call for, for other people. Um, but the, 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 the thing is you have to pause, you know, I, I, the way I, I define wonder is that wonder is about dreaming and curiosity and audacity and asking big blue sky. What if questions, it's also about awe and pausing and we are not particularly good at pausing in our society. And we, we, we are in the middle of a universal pause right now and <laughs> taking for shape in the, in the form of, a, of the COVID global, COVID-19 global pandemic and the quarantine, which has forced us to collectively sit our behinds down and pause. And some of us, um, lingered a little bit longer and other, others of us got right back on, on that freight train. But those of us who did pause looked at the opportunity to really sit with some of the existential questions that were starting to emerge about what kind of work do I really want to do? Does this work still matter to me? If this work still matters to me, should we be doing it in the way we've been doing it? Um, now that that lines and boundaries are getting more blurred between work and home and work and play and and learning and, and home and learning and work, um, how might we allow more of the human to show up? Um, so if you don't pause, it's not impossible to get off the freight train. It's just going to be a little bumpier. You may feel a little bit more bruised. You always have options. You always have options to stop and pause. When I left academia after 16 years, it was because so I've never had like a five-year plan. I literally, literally have built my career by following my heart. And, and every time I've reached a crossroads, there's this little voice that's telling me, eh, I don't know if I want to continue to do this. And I always have a choice. I can listen to that soft voice or I can ignore it. And in my case, the voice was very, very quiet because what was happening to me is that my work in, in academia was becoming less about teaching, which was the part of it that I loved. And it was becoming much more about the administrative load, which I loathed. Um, and actually something that I, I developed a, a Wonder Rigor Lab online course. So one of the, the first um, exercises I take people through is the loathe love audit. Um, where you have to really identify what it is about where you are that you and I don't mean, and maybe this is even not strong enough a word, but you really despise 
about where you are and what you're doing and what you love. Cause I did that for myself. Um, so you have to pause, you have to take inventory, you have to excavate. And, um, and then it is, it is terrifying, but I have this expression that if you're at a point or stage in your life where the option before you feels 50% terrifying and 50% exhilarating, then you should leap. And the reason you should is because the terror anchors you. The terror ensures that you dot your I's, you cross your T's, that you, you, know, you try to keep things on point. Um, you're not sloppy with it. And the exhilaration keeps you buoyant. It keeps you optimistic. It keeps you hopeful. You need both. You need mm-hmm. both the anchoring um, and, and the, the exhilaration. Um, so my advice is you got to pause. You have to take inventory. You will burn out if you don't. And I, I, I know of what I'm talking about. I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm talking about this from personal experience. And I'm talking about this from observing based on this stage in my life of how I see it play out um, for other people. Yeah. I'm totally resonating with the terror and exhilaration right now, because when you said that, I, <laughs> I thought back to a few days ago, I have a little uh, WhatsApp group where um, a few of us just talk messages into each other with kind of whatever we're feeling in the moment to get, kind of get it out into the world. And a few days ago, I just started recording and was like, I'm feeling fear. I'm feeling so much fear. And I was like (laughs) doing this whole song about the fear because it's constant in starting, Mm. you know, working on my own business. There's like this constant level of fear that is like permeating my day to day of like fear of putting myself out there, fear of saying something off, fear of, you know, not following up in a timely way, fear of, I mean, just, just on and on and on. And there's this total exhilaration that comes with the good days of when you're yes. like really moving and flowing and getting things done. Yes. So. That's awesome. That's awesome. I love that. Yeah. So there's so much here for us to, to dive into. I would actually love for you to talk a little bit more about your framework. Um, the wonder rigor, because I think it's super cool. And I feel like it can help me, <laughs> also <laughs> others, <laughs> if you're if you're open to talking about it a little bit more. Sure. So, um, so yeah. So I think about creativity as toggling between wonder and rigor to solve problems, and I wanted to make sure I, first of all, offered a way of thinking about creativity that was simple um, because then it would be more accessible. And then I would begin to achieve the goal of democratizing creativity because um, what I've said mm. in a lot of other forums and interviews is that we ghettoize creativity in the arts. So in companies we have, you know, even demarcations of the creatives will take care of that. And what ends up happening is it ends up being uh, design teams who are treated like um, a group of people who will, you know, slap lipstick on a pig. You know, they'll make it pretty at the end instead of it being really integrative and really understanding that design is part of strategy and 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 that sort of approach. So 
um, toggling between wonder and rigor is also important to remember because creativity is not doing whatever you feel like. It's not, you know, as I like to say, pulling something randomly out of your armpit. It, <laughs> it requires the rigor, which is about discipline and deep focus and time on task and repetition. And it's not particularly sexy. It's often very solitary work. And it is essential. And if we do look to artists for a moment, to because they are so excellent at manifesting creativity, but so are engineers and exceptional techies and entrepreneurs and teachers and farmers. If we look at any of you who are listening who have, um, you know, gone down the path to be a student of an art form, you know, that the beginning is really like, oh, what scales? What? I have to keep just practicing a plie and a railway? What? I don't get to just float across the stage? I don't I don't get to, to, to play a, a cool Jimi Hendrix riff on, on the guitar, right? So it's this idea that, yes, creativity is work. And that's part of the reason I think that more of us don't embrace embedding a creative process and a creative practice in our lives and works because we we don't we're really shirking away from the work that is required mm. um but then there's the toggling word you, you can't stay too long in one dimension or another if you stay too long in the wonder dimension and you're 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 too much up in the clouds you're not anchored in in anything to really let the work become possible and actionable. And then if you're too much in the rigor dimension, um, you, you can burn out. There's a corollary that I made up, which is that wonder is found in the midst of rigor and rigor cannot be sustained without wonder. They are copacetic. Mm-hmm. So when I talk about how, how wonder is found in the midst of rigor, if you think about any rigorous process that you engage in and might be completing taxes or finishing a big Excel sheet. Or for me, one of these I've been trying to, to, to be doing every uh, workday a morning is stretch my body. Sometimes I just mm. have five minutes. Ideally I have 20 minutes and it's very mundane deconstructing my body, but it's often in those moments that Ah, like an aha moment happens, yes. a new idea emerges. So that's what I mean when I say wonder is found in the midst of rigor. And then when I say that rigor can't be sustained without wonder, I simply mean that if we run from Zoom meeting to Zoom meeting to Zoom meeting, we we won't have time for the all hallowed I word innovation. You're, you're not you're not pausing and making time for the wonder. So you've got to design your space and your time for wonder and for rigor. There's a space time dimension for for each of those. In the book, I give practical tips at the end of each chapter about how to make this real in your personal life, how to make this real in an organization. Because I don't want to leave people hanging about like, okay, that sounds all, all good and fine, but like, how do you do this? Yeah. So for example, um, one, of the, one of the things I advise, I'll just give two examples on the wonder side, um, take daydream breaks, which in a way is a wonder and rigor because I'm timing my days. Unlike when I was a little girl and I could just daydream on and on and on and on. Yeah. <laughs> right? In the days that I have now, sometimes it's 90 seconds. 
it's sitting outside in the steps. If it's cold outside, it's standing by a window. So this is five minutes and this is 15 minutes, but daytime daydream breaks. The reason that's important is that it's allowing the neural synapses in our brain to ignite away from just the frontal region, the frontal lobe of our brain with that deep focus thinking is having a lot of the, the heads down work. And it's allowing it to ignite in other areas of our body, and I'm sorry, of our brain, so that when we return to the work at hand, we've allowed for a much more dynamic flow. I think it's estimated that we probably only use 20 to 30% of our brain's capacity. We are not at all allowing for the, all that electromagnetic firing up to really happen because we're not allowing ourselves to rest enough. Mm-hmm. We're not allowing ourselves to um, go into kind of flow state, which can happen when you're just going for a walk, when you're putting away the dishes, when you're daydreaming. So take daydream breaks. Um, another mm-hmm. thing I, I really am an advocate of is becoming a clumsy student of something. Um, yes. Because right when you're when you're in that student mode, you exercise what I call the three eyes, and the three eyes are, are how we can exercise the toggling between wonder and rigor. So three eyes are, you've heard me say this before, inquiry, improvisation, and intuition. So right now I'm a clumsy student of social ballroom dance and I improvise constantly, especially when I'm in the group sessions or we have masks on these dance party sessions where I'm dancing with a new partner, a new teacher. I have to intuit a lot more. Every time I have a new teacher, instructor, or partner, I have to I have to reframe my question differently. All of this exercises a competency in me so that when I return to the work at hand, I can more readily improvise. I'm not afraid to act on my intuition. I'm I'm not as shy or bashful to ask a new and different question because I've been practicing it in a clumsy way. And it also gives me a good sense of humor about myself. So th- those are some examples of ways that, that we can we can practice this as a competency. Yeah. I've actually, one thing I've been doing recently is I know around 3 p.m. every day, I have like... Uh, mush brain, zero brain. I don't know what you want to call it, but it is like blank in there. And I look at my screen and nothing comes out. And so I've created a practice of laying down on my office floor for 15 minutes, 20 minutes and allowing myself to just daydream. Or sometimes I do a focused meditation. Sometimes I just move my body and it's amazing. Sometimes I'm on the floor five minutes and like things start just like churning, popping. And I go back to the computer and I'm like, "Ah, I got to get it all done. Something's shifting in here. Um, Because I was just noticing how useless I was at that moment. Well, at least you're you're paying attention. You know, there's a great book that Daniel Pink wrote called When. Yes, When. I've read it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's the time. Don't go get surgery at 3 p.m. (laughs) Don't do that. Go early in the morning, but also pay attention. It is different for each of us. Pay attention if you are a morning person or yeah. if you are an evening person. Um, it's different for all of us, but it's it's um, it's sense making with our bodies. We have to be more in our bodies and pay attention to when we're starting to feel bedraggled, when we're feeling just everything is alight and and fired up. Um, that matters. And one of the one of the silver linings for some people, not for all, but but for some, is that because of the quarantine. And work from home, more 
more working models are moving to a flexible model, which is allowing people to hopefully take advantage of, of when they are at their, their, their most productive, you know, highly present self. Yeah. What are some tricks you've used to get into your own body or to help others kind of pay better attention to what's happening? So it's, it's, it's um, both stillness and movement. And for me, I happen, I'm really fortunate. I live in a beautiful community in Philadelphia where I'm in, I'm in the city of Philadelphia and the woods are like right across the street. So I can take a dip into the woods and do what the Japanese call forest bathing and, and really um, get a, get a nice recharge that way to get into my body. Um, But the stillness is also important because then we begin to realize that um, we're a little hunched over in our shoulders or feeling really tight. The other is just to remind yourself when you're going into maybe a difficult conversation and you know, it's going to be a challenging conversation. Ask yourself to pay attention to where you're starting to tighten up, how your stomach is feeling, making sure you breathe because it's fascinating. When I started doing this, I thought, oh no, I don't, why would I need to make sure I'm breathing? Of course I'm breathing, but I'm not. I'm no. really, I really <laughs> begin to like suck it in and like I get tense and I'm, I'm waiting for my next chance to pounce, right? And, mm-hmm. and that's, that's not gonna resolve the situation well at all. So that, those are all ways to, to get more into our body. Sometimes it's the movement the loose movement that isn't doesn't require any kind of strategies, just walking, which allows us to get into our body. And others it's, times it's, it's just being still and, and noticing how we're feeling. Yeah. I think that breath is so important. I, I remember catching my breath so frequently, like, oh, wait, I'm not actually breathing right now. Even in yoga class, which is supposed <laughs> to be the place that you're really focusing on you know, getting to the bottom and tops of your breath. I remember years ago, I would hold my breath between poses because I was becoming more conscious to it being like, what is going on here? Mm-hmm. Stress. I mean, stress, yes. fear, yes. anger, all kind of being caught up in that, in that breath, I think. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Breathing is essential. Yeah. Well, you said something a little bit ago, and I think this might be a good place to kind of Rap, because you talked about the audacity of like being in that wonder state and that sort of questioning state and that daydreaming state and just that like, and I love that word, but I'm curious kind of what are you being audacious about right now? Or what mm. are you crazy asking huh, about, you know, what are the big mm. things that are coming up for you? Um... I am being audacious about building up my practice in thought leadership um, and and being really um, audacious about how I show up. And sometimes it's just it's just the audacity is showing up as a black woman working in the innovation space. Um, there aren't a ton of people <laughs> who look like me. Um, and that matters, even if when you read my book, um, you know, I think of this as additive, it's not in place of, but you know, my reference points are, are very different, um, because of my lived experience. And I am so aware that one of the reasons I studied anthropology, for example, was because one of the books that was assigned 
was an anthology edited by Junetta B. Cole, a Black woman who at the time was the president of Spelman College. She went on to become the head of the Smithsonian, Smithsonian's Museum of African Art. Um, and I turned the book around. I was in the bookstore waiting, to pay, waiting in line to pay for this big pile of books. And there's a photograph of an African-American woman with a manicure and lip gloss staring back at me. And in that moment, I was both thrilled and embarrassed. I was thrilled because, oh my gosh, that's that's an anthropologist. She looks she looks like my aunties, but embarrassed because in that moment I realized I thought anthropologists were older white guys who worked for National Geographic mm-hmm. and dug up dirt in villages in South America and in Africa. I didn't see myself in that in that place in that space. So um, what a lot of what I I ask her about is like so so why so why is the innovations thought leadership space. Um, not more reflective of of um, black and brown women um, of women um, and and what if I what if I was one of the early contributors in that way um, I'm being really audacious about thinking about my next book which is still TBD but I'm I'm already starting to wade into that water and, and thinking about like what are the next set of ideas that I want to frame and, and write about? I'm also being asking her a lot more about being true to myself, my health, forming small rituals in my life, sticking to them. For me, rituals are promises that I keep to myself. Sometimes that's the biggest win, but more than, okay, once again, I got up five mornings this week. And I wrote in my gratitude journal, I prayed and meditated and I stretched my body more than the crux of it is that I did it. I kept the promise to myself. And now I can look back. I already have a year's worth of of gratitude in my gratitude journal to reflect back on one one morning at the beach this summer, you know, when I go out to the beach. So those are the sorts of things that I'm being audacious about and I'm asking her about. I love that. And I think that that is a perfect way to end. But before we go, where can people find you? Oh, thank you for asking. People can find me at figure8thinking.com. That's F-I-G-U-R-E, the number eight in the word thinking.com. And they can get a free sample chapter of the creativity leap there. They can dig a little bit more into the Wonder Rigger discovery deck. There's a whole card deck that I that I created around Wonder Rigger. Um, and I have all sorts of other goodies on the Figure Eight Thinking website. Amazing. And what about are you on any of the socials? Yes, um, on Instagram and Twitter, I'm at Nat W Nixon. And then people can also find me on LinkedIn and on Facebook. I'm a bit of a shabby Facebook user, but people can find me there too. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming and talking today. I so appreciate you. Thank you for having me, Christy. I appreciate it. It It's awesome talking to you. That is a wrap. Thank you so much for tuning in. As you know, I'm new to this podcasting thing, so I would love to hear what you thought. Send me an email at chrissy at askhuh.com. That is K-R-I-S-S-I-E at askhuh.com. Or find me on Insta at chrismack, K-R-I-S-S-M-A-C. And most importantly, take a moment or two or 12 today, tomorrow, and the next day after that to pause and ask, huh, I would love to hear what you discovered.